We're looking at uh, the last section of uh, Ephesians today, chapter 6. And it sort of takes us back to the beginning when we started out and I gave you an introduction to what Paul was going to be discussing and what he was going to be arguing against in the background of these people. And you remember I mentioned that there were all kinds of religions floating around in that part of the world at that time that were sort of mystery religions. They had the uh, temple of Artemis right on the hill behind it there with all of its religion. And then there was that major doctrine that was permeating culture at that time called Gnosticism, which uh, emphasized the fact that you're saved if you have the right kind of knowledge. And if you have the light that shines upon you that comes in a mysterious way. And so this was the background of the people that uh, Paul was addressing in the Ephesian letter. And we're picking up on that again uh, at the close of this chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul begins to speak of uh, the wiles of the devil. And what he has in mind is that these different religions and philosophies that were floating around should be attributed to Satan, and that Satan uses those. Now, obviously, um, people have these religious thoughts that they cook up and begin to follow, and there is a sense in which they are responsible for their views. But Paul ties into that, and he says, you need to understand that Satan is able to use those to keep you away from Jesus. That's why he refers to them as the wiles of Satan or the wiles of the devil, the tricks of the, the deceitful way in which Satan works to get them away from Jesus. And the point that he's making here throughout the book, reminding these Gentile believers, you remember Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 following, he says, remember that at one time you Gentiles were out there and you didn't have anything to do with God. You had no hope in the world. You were without God in the world. You were without Christ in the world. But God, by his great mercy and love, he has reconciled you to him through Jesus Christ. And so that's the point that he's been driving home as we went through this. And so when we get down to this chapter, he's sort of going back to the thought of the problems that they were facing, that these Ephesian Christians or those living in that area were facing that were compounded by the world in which they lived. And we face similar kind of situation today. I doubt that any of us think that our problems that we're facing that are trying to pull us away from Jesus are the spirit world out there. But, you know, there are all kinds of religions out there right now that would like to get you away from Jesus or to focus your life on Jesus. So the same problems and thoughts uh, we face today in a slightly different way. Now, as Jeannie will know, and I know, and June knows, we grew up in South Africa, in Africa, in a world which believed very deeply in a real, live, spiritual world out there. But, you know, all probability, you grew up in a culture that sort of put those down. They really don't exist. We live in a materialistic world today. And we don't have much thought about the spiritual world that is out there. But, you know, the people that Paul is writing to, this was a major portion of their life. And as I mentioned earlier on, if they wanted their crops to grow, and if they, want, they wanted their babies to be healthy, they had to pay the price. 
which was go and worship at one of the altars of these different gods. And so it was a very real part of their life that was a threat to their faith in Jesus. And Paul is going to argue not so much in this letter, but in the Colossian letter, we need to remember as we're talking about the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Philippians and the letter to the Colossians, all written at about the same time. And this particular uh, letter that I want to refer to, Colossians, runs parallel to Ephesians. Many of the same thoughts are picked up in the Colossian letter that Paul is mentioning here in the Ephesian letter. <clears throat> and uh, he emphasizes the fact that all of the thoughts that they have and that they were looking for are found in Jesus because he is the fullness of everything. And so Colossians runs close to that. We'll come back to Colossians in a little while and look at a text there. But I want you to see that the thought of a spiritual world that is a threat to their faith was very real for these uh, Christians. Now, it's also interesting how Paul has structured this block of material because very often the way Paul wrote, uh, the style that he wrote in was influenced by other philosophies or other teachers uh, at that, that time and before that time. And so the way he lists these things, how they have been prepared for this battle against the spiritual world, he, you find also in the writings of Epictetus and the Stoics and uh, other thoughts like this in the documents that have been found at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So Paul is using a method of communicating to them that they would understand part of their background. So we start off here with verse 10. <clears throat> Finally, now, uh, finally doesn't mean like we normally think finally means this is it. It does mean it. It's at the end, sort of. But, you know, we, we, we joke about the fact that pre pre preachers will say, finally, my last point is this, and then he preaches for another 30 minutes. Well, Paul is not doing that. The word finally that uh, he's using, or let's say the expression that he's using here, finally, means this is a closing thought, but... There's more to come. It points forward. So it's emphasizing, yeah, I'm saying something to you here that looks like I'm bringing this to an end, but I want you to know it's pointing to the future and the struggles you are going to be having in the future. So it's an interesting way. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, you'll remember going back to chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul had written to these Christians and explained to them that on their own they were not able to so live their lives that they would bring glory to God because there's so much competition out there. They would need all the help that they could get. And so he had God had promised to give them the Holy Spirit who would strengthen them within with might so that they might live the kind of life that uh, God wanted them to live and they wanted themselves to live. So th this is not the first time as we look at this closing chapter here, that Paul is referring to some strength that they have to combat the spiritual world. Okay? And he's already talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit was dwelling in them with power to enable them to so live their lives. So it's not the first time Paul has mentioned the fact that God has done something to help them and to strengthen them because of the battle that they're going to be facing. I would imagine if we just stopped for a while and said, each of you uh, take a piece of paper and write on that sheet of paper one battle that you are facing in your life right now or one 
problem that you are facing in your life right now. And I'm sure if you just wrote down one, we'd, we'd have a, quite a pile of them that we could think of, that we in our lives today face a number of problems that threaten us and draw our attention away from where our attention should be. And so Paul has that kind of a mind for these people as well. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I know that very often we're good Christians and we've been well taught and we hear good sermons and we're in a good congregation and very often we draw into the position where we think that we can handle it. You know, I can handle this problem. And Paul is trying to tell him, no, you can't handle these kind of problems. You do need the strength of God working in your life. Okay, So be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Then put on the armor of God. I would imagine if I raised this question and asked you to do it, how many of you, when you were children, if you can remember that far back, but I'm sure you can. Uh, in your Bible class or vacation Bible school, they had you all up the front on the platform dressed up like a soldier with armor on and a helmet on and all of those kind of things. So we're familiar with this story here of the whole armor of God. And it's almost as though uh, we're telling a story that we don't have to tell. We all know it already. You see, It's a part of our background, and that's good. But there are some things in here that I think we need to focus attention on. And this is the whole armor of God, which tells us that God has provided for us the armor that we needed. Can't help but sort of let my mind wander back to David and Goliath and Saul. And David comes into the scene. Here's this young shepherd boy. uh, And uh, Goliath is out there. And he eventually convinces Saul and the Jewish army that he'll go out there and he'll kill Goliath. And so what do they do? They give him Saul's armor. And what happened? He couldn't wear it. It was too big and too heavy. Because that was not the kind of armor that he needed for the fight that he was going to face. What was the armor that he needed to go into that battle? He needed God, that's right, and he knew that God would deliver him and give him the victory. So you see, we can sometimes look at the wrong kind of armor. It's really not going to do what we need it to do. But we need to come back and realize that this is the whole armor. (coughs) Excuse me. The word whole emphasizes here God's given us everything we need. It's already there. He's given us everything we need, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That word stand is, a, is also an interesting word. Yes, ma'am. Schemes. Well, I've encouraged you before to get a good Bible, Betty, <laughs> uh, but that's okay. Now, let me put it this way. The word wiles, <laughs> the word that's used for wiles means schemes. Am I off the hook now? Okay. Or deceitful schemes is the thought that lies behind this. You know, he has schemes, he has plans, he has deceitful ways of getting to us. So we are encouraged to stand against the wiles, the schemes, the deceitfulness of Satan. But I like that word stand because um, it carries 
uh, within it a sense of uh, firmness. Okay, um, it's like uh, you can stand uh, before someone and and you know that doesn't make anything. But this word means you're plonked down there and you ain't moving. You're standing firm. Okay, so in order that we may be able to stand firm, almost immovable. Against the wiles of the devil, God has given us what? Armor to help us, to protect us, and to engage in this battle that we have. So watch that word stand there as we work through this. But he has, so that we may be able to stand firmly against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood. Now just think back for a moment. Where is Paul when he's writing this letter? He's in prison. What kind of a prison? A Roman prison. Not the nicest place to be. I mentioned to you a little while ago uh, a documentary or a movie that uh, June and I had picked up on while we were looking for something to watch. And it was called Paul the Apostle of Christ. And it's really the story of just the last few days of the Apostle Paul in this Roman prison, and Luke uh, is there with him. Luke uh, is learning from Paul what Paul had gone through and what he had done in his mission journeys. Luke wasn't there when Paul went on his first, second, or third missionary journeys. On one of them, he was there for a while when they went to Philippi, but normally Luke wasn't with Paul wherever he went. And so this movie sort of tells the story of Luke being in prison there, but he was treated nicely because apparently he came from a wealthy background. He was a medical doctor and this type of thing. But Paul was abused. I mean, you see him in this being lashed. You see him being kicked. You see him being punched in this movie. Uh, and it sort of, as it starts out, I thought, I don't know whether I want to watch this or not. But fortunately, it moves on to you see Paul, how he helps Luke understand that the battle that we're fighting is not against the Romans. It's not against being in prison because he will tell us that uh, he's been blessed to be able to use that fact of being in prison to expand the kingdom of God and preach. See, So Paul is, is very well aware of the dangers of being a Christian and being abused. And in this movie, you see Christians being led out into the arena to be uh, killed by the lions and whatever. And then as the movie develops, Luke has the opportunity, having listened to Paul, to go and speak to them and to explain to them that what's going to happen to them is terrible, but it's like a sleep. You'll die and you'll wake up with Jesus. And that's Luke's story that he tells these people. But why I'm telling you this is sometimes I think... We, uh, in the comfort of our culture, are not always sensitive to what Paul had to go through uh, to be God's messenger to the Gentiles. Problems he had with the Jews and problems he had with the Gentiles. Uh, I'm reading a book right now. If you're interested in reading, I recommend it to you. It's by a, a, a scholar in Scotland at St. Andrew's University, well, world-renowned New Testament scholar, Norman Tom Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. And uh, you can buy it from Amazon.com. Uh, 
uh, $9 something on the Kindle version. Okay. <clears throat> and it's just called Paul. Just Paul. And Wright is going through everything that was wrapped up in this man, Paul, that became the apostle of Jesus Christ. Fascinating, uh, as it gives us a new light into what was wrapped up in Paul as he went out as uh, an evangelist, an ambassador, as a missionary uh, to both the Jews and the Gentiles. It was not easy, as you already know. And Paul is making the statement here, when we're talking about the wiles of the devil, he said, we're not talking about the physical battles that we're facing. We're talking about spiritual battles. Would you turn over to Second Corinthians chapter 10 and pick up with verse 3. I'll just drop back to verse 1 to get the thought. Writing to the Corinthians, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold to you when I am away. I beg you that when I am present I may not show boldness, but such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of acting in a worldly fashion. For though we live in the world, we are not carrying on in a worldly war, okay? It'll be very easy for us uh, to be depressed if we watch the news uh, these evenings. Uh, 4.30, 5 o'clock, whether you watch CNN or whether you watch Fox, uh, our country's in a mess. That's if we listen to these folk that are telling us, you see. And it will be very easy for us to get drawn into that in our thinking and somewhat lose our confidence that we should have. But notice what he says. Showing against uh, some who suspect us of acting in a worldly fashion. For though we live in the world, we are not carrying on a worldly war. For the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What he's talking about the strongholds there, the strongholds of Satan, whatever they might be. So come back to Ephesians here. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the ruler of the world, or against world leaders, rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So he's focusing in on, we are contending here against the spiritual world in which we live. Now, the principalities um, harks back to the Gnostic teaching, I expect, that believed surrounding the world, we are here in the world, which is physical and it's bad because of the Platonic background, but there are realms around the world, and in each of those realms, right, uh, Satan has placed a, a a demagogue or a power in those realms. And that being or that spiritual being, whatever it is, in that realm, in sort of concentric circles, you get to God out there somewhere, each of them is guarding his realm. And in order to escape from the world, to get where you want to go, the Gnostics said you've got to have the right roadmap. You've got to have the right knowledge so that you can zigzag around all those principalities and get out there. And their concept was that this special 
light or this knowledge comes is the light that comes from God. Now, remember, we're studying Ephesians. Um, you all know where Ephesians is or was. Sort of Turkey, Western Turkey. All right. If you turn over to your Bibles, don't do it now. You go to 1st, 2nd and 3rd John. Not written by Paul. But who was John writing to or for whom was he writing when he wrote 1st, 2nd and 3rd John? The very same people Paul is writing to in Ephesus and surrounding Ephesus. So although John comes a lot later than Paul, nevertheless it's the same world that John is addressing there uh, that uh, uh, Paul is addressing. And it's also the same as John, uh, the Gospel of John. John wrote the Gospel of John for these very same people, that background. Do you remember that Jesus said in John chapter 14 verse 6, which he's telling him there, don't be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Why? For I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? And so, again, the same people that John is writing to. So we're looking at them just a little earlier before this stuff has really made an inroad into the church and has really threatened the church. So when he comes back here and he's talking about these principalities, he's talking about the spiritual beings that these people believed that were out there uh, and that they were going to keep you fixed to this world. So the principalities against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness. Uh, the, the false teaching at that time was this world is in darkness and they don't want light to come into this world. And so uh, Paul and John will say, yes, but light has come into the world. Uh, it is Jesus. And so what are the powers of darkness going to try and do? They're going to try and get rid of Jesus. They're going to try and get rid of the light. And how far did they go in trying to get rid of Jesus? They crucified him, you see, trying to get rid of this light that was in Jesus. But we know the rest of the story, which we'll talk about a little further here. Against the powers, against the rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places, that's in the spiritual world, the heavenly places. <clears throat> Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. It's interesting in this little block of material here, um, Paul mentions that word, word stand three times. And so when you see him coming back to mentioning the whole armor of God twice and stand three times, you sort of get the image here that you are to stand firm, drawing on the armor that you have and face the threats that are going to be coming to you in the life in which you live. Now, you know, it's not, it's easy for us. We need to just think in terms, I'm thinking of my uh, life. What are, what are the threats uh, that I'm facing? Um, in this world. You know, I don't have too many, but there's always the threat that uh, I might lose my mind. For a person that's been teaching in a university for over 40 years, um, for me to start thinking about that is not a nice idea. 
Uh, I, you know, you've got to understand I'm a chicken. Uh, for years, I just didn't want to die of cancer. I didn't want anything to do with cancer. And I'd even talk to God, say, God, I don't want to get cancer. Heart attack. That's what I want. I want to be driving down Oldham Road in Abilene. Okay. That's out into the country, driving on my bicycle with Tony Ash. And we get out there 10 miles out in the country, and all of a sudden, I fall off my bike dead from a heart attack. That's the way I wanted to go. Well, God didn't pay any attention to me. I had to get rid of my bike and I haven't fallen off, and I'm still here. But I still would rather have it be that way, just boom, gone. But guess what? Three, four years ago, what did I get? Cancer. And had to go through all of that process. So, again, you know, there are things out there you do, and I don't have the ability to change. We don't have the right to tell God how we're going to die, whether it's going to be easy or not, or whether I'm going to lose my mind or not. There's always that uncertainty out there, especially as we get a little older. Because some of you haven't got there yet, Vicky. It's not a problem for you yet. But what do we do have in the light of the uncertainty of the spiritual world or the problems that we have out there? What do we have that keeps us going? I want one word that begins with an F. Faith. We have faith. What does faith mean? Sorry? What we cannot see. Yeah, okay. Anything else? Assurance. Assurance. We learn that, don't we, over there in that Hebrews thing, all right? But let me try and just deepen your thinking of uh, faith. It comes from the Greek word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, which is one of those Greek words that just can go every which way, all kinds of sides to this little gem that we look at in faith. And when we read here that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Obviously, we're not talking about knowing something about Jesus Christ. That's not what Paul is saying. Um, It carries a sense of trust. Faith, whenever you run into this word faith or belief, the root word behind that carries the sense of trust. And we are trusting in God that he will take care of us and he will see us through. And he's going to talk about faith here again, but I want you to see whenever you run into that word faith or belief, lurking inside that word is the sense that we are trusting. Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. What's he saying to his disciples? Now, remember the disciples, this is right at the end of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John, we read it, and he's telling them he's going to go leave them, and he's going to go away, but God will send them a, a spirit who would be a comforter for them, and they were disturbed about this whole lot. And they were Jews, okay? And so he says to them, well, you do believe in God, don't you? What would the answer to that be? Why, yeah, we're Jews, we believe in God. And then what does he follow up with right after that? Believe also in me. In other words, trust me. I'm going to be going. But you are not going to be left alone because God is going to send you a comforter, the Holy Spirit, who will guide you. you see? So it's that little word, trust. You believe in God, believe also in me. Trust me. I think sometimes the assurance of things not seen, that's part of the story. But because there are those things not seen out there, we need to have something that girds us up and gives us strength. And that's that trust 
that we have in God. So you believe in God, trust me, I'll take care of you. So we come back to here, these principalities and powers and the spiritual whole, uh, uh, hosts in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, that's the, trist, uh, the trying day, whatever it is, and having done all, stand. I mean, just make up your mind, stand. I'm not going to give up because I trust in God. So we move on. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace. Besides all this, take the shield of faith, with whom, with which you quench all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Now, for you and me, we've read that a whole lot of times, and, and I'm sure that we think that we think of that Roman soldier standing there, and he's got his shield, he's got his helmet on, he's got his breastplate on, he's got his sword, and he's ready to go to battle. Okay? That comes from our background, we know that. You try and teach this to a bunch of Zulus in South Africa. They have no image of a Roman soldier. That's not part of their background. And when their soldiers went out to war, guess what they did? They stripped down to nothing and had a shield or a, a, a spear and a big shield made out of cowhide. That was the, so when you come to this lot here and start talking about all of the equipment that these people, Paul was mentioning to these people, we understand that because of our background, but there are people in the world that don't have a clue what you're talking about there. So we've got to sort of translate that for ourselves to get a better understanding of that. All right? So let's come back and start with it again. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in that evil day and having done all stand, therefore ha having girded your loins with truth. That's the area around your loins. Girding your loins with truth. What do you think that means? We gird our, That doesn't make sense. You gird your loins with truth. Do you remember some guy, uh, and somebody's going to have to help me, back in Greek mythology, this guy went out to war with one of the other uh, generals, and uh, they were fighting, and the guy either shot an arrow or stuck a spear in his Achilles tendon. What was that guy's name? Oh, come on, help me. Hmm? Achilles. Yeah, that was his name. That's why it's called the Achilles tendon. Okay. Um, and, if, you know, you stick a spear in this guy's foot and guess what? It's all over. It's the same for a Roman soldier. If you could pierce him in his loins, guess what? He's not going to be able to fight anymore. And so in our most vulnerable part that we have, or one of the most vulnerable parts that we have, we have truth. What does that mean? I could just ask you, I know what kind of an answer I'm going to get. Do you have the truth? Oh, come on. Is anybody going to say no? No, we're not going to fess up to that. Okay, what is it that you've got? Okay, yes. Hmm? 
Stability. Stability, yes. Somebody said Jesus. Okay. The word truth is a, fascin- a fascinating word. Uh, it is aletheia. Aletheia. Um, my mother-in-law's name was Elysia, which is a derivative of that. Okay. And it carries the sense... It's used, one of the most uh, interesting examples of this is given of, uh, your husband would understand this, a carpenter who makes furniture, you know, takes some wood and works on it and puts it all together. I had a friend up in Durango that did that. I mean, this guy was absolutely remarkable. He made all of the furniture in his house, and when you looked at it, everything fit just beautifully. Uh, College of Biblical Studies in Abilene, when we built that building, I asked for this long table in the dean's conference room there and they got a specialist down in Dallas to make this thing for us and you couldn't see the it's laminated all over the top you cannot see a gap in the, the laminate it's just put all together so well and he made a credenza on the side perfect and I said I want to check this guy out so I turned the credenza around and looked at the back and guess what it was perfect all the way through didn't have a crack in it See? And so some scholars way back have used that sense of a carpenter making something, but when he's finished with it, it's got a lot of cracks in it, like me. So when I make something and it's got cracks in it, what, what did I do? I got wood filler to fill up the cracks, you see, so it looks good. You see, Well, that's sort of the background behind this word, but it carries the sense of that which is genuine. That which is real. So we, as God's children, have our loins girded, girded with truth. That which is genuine. That which is real. We don't worship spirits that float around out there. We worship a God that is real. So real that he even came into our world in human form so we could see what he's like. He's real. See? He is truth. Didn't Jesus say something about himself being the truth? I am the genuine one. In Jesus' world back at that time, the argument was, if you've got the law of Moses and you follow the law of Moses, you're okay. But Jesus comes on the scene and says, no, no, that's not. Moses was not the truth. I am the truth. I am the one that is genuine. You remember uh, when Jesus was transfigured, uh, a voice spoke out there and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then what? Listen to him. You don't listen to Moses. You don't listen to the prophets. You listen to Jesus. Why? He is the real thing. He is genuine. So you and I, we have that which is real. I could take off on a tear here, and, and but I won't, sort of. Um, we have in God's Word what is genuine. Okay? We, we trust in God's Word because it's from God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We believe it is genuine. But believe me, for over 2,000 years, Satan has been trying to tear that down and get us to believe that it's really not from God. It's just human wisdom. But in 2,000 years, as scholars have attacked this, and as we come back with what? 
It's real. We trust it. It tells us a real story. Did you know there has been more written in history about the death and resurrection of Jesus than was written about Julius Caesar? There are more doctrines that specifically talk about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And yet what? How many of you question whether Julius Caesar ever lived? We know, we, yeah, it's part of our background. Well, we have that which is really true. It's genuine. That's Jesus. So when he says here, your, your loins are girded with truth. I mean, this is the real thing. Having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What is righteousness? Normally we think of righteousness as, well, it's getting everything right. You got it right, so you must be what? You must be right or righteous. But for the Jew, righteousness didn't mean that. It meant that you are in a right relationship with God. Now for the Jew that Jesus was combating and Paul was combating, the Jews came along and said, well, if you keep the law, then you're in a right relationship with God. And Paul will argue, no, Abraham was righteous long before the law was given, 430 years before the law was given. Abraham was already declared to be righteous by God. What did he have? Faith. He trusted God. Can you just think about that story? That Abraham trusted God. God says to him, hey, I want you to take this special son of yours that I gave you. When you go up to that mountain, I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. And what does Abraham do? Hey, well, he might have done this, but we don't hear it. Hey, wait a minute, God. Let's talk about this. Because it doesn't fit my schedule. It doesn't sound like it's right. Uh, and I know you're telling me this, but it doesn't sound like it's right. Have you ever talked to people, some people that you're trying to convert about that, and you get to them on baptism, and you read baptism, and you say, did Jesus say that? Yeah, it's right, but let me discuss that with you. Yeah. No, you don't discuss something with God, all right? And so that's what we have here when we look at this business of righteousness. Righteousness is not getting it all right. Why? Because you and I will never get it all right. But it has the sense of you're right with God. You're in a right relationship with God. So the question that we have to ask is, how do we get into a right relationship with God? Through trusting what God has done in Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. What do we call that one word? We're justified by grace through faith. See, through trusting in what God has done. And so Paul will make that argument. To get into a right relationship with God and stay in a right relationship with God, all you need to do is have faith in God, trust in God. He knows that we're going to blow it now and again, hopefully not too often. But by grace, he has saved us in the first place, and he doesn't quit saving us by grace after we're baptized. We just know we're always going to have we, But we are righteous in a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So whenever you run into that word righteousness, you need to remember what it's talking about is being in a right relationship with God. Okay? 
And for us, it's through faith in Jesus. I think that there are some teachings, some regulations um, that are good and that God has taught us that we want to follow, we want to adhere to those instructions that we have in Scripture. But even those instructions in Scripture, although they're good, you and I are never going to get them all right. And what's more, we're not always going to agree on all of those instructions. But you see, we don't get into a right relationship with God by agreeing with one another. We get into a right relationship with God by agreeing with God. We get into a right relationship with God through our trust in God and not trusting in our own ability. I have to tell you this story. A lot of you have heard of uh, Randy Harris. Have you heard of Randy Harris, one of the Bible professors and preachers at Abilene Christian College? Just a phenomenal speaker. Uh, also a phenomenal mind. This guy is really sharp. And he goes around preaching. Well, when, when I hired him at ACU from over there in Arkansas, I won't tell you where in Arkansas, but I was able to hire him from Arkansas to come to Abilene Christian. Uh, we also hired him at the congregation uh, where I was one of the elders and he became our preacher. Ah, oh, it was like heaven had opened up to sit there every Sunday and listen to Randy Harris. Great guy. But he has a weird sense of humor. I think it's what we call an Arkansas sense of humor. A little strange, okay? And so he, he, he knew that my, one of my fields of special study in my academic world is called eschatology. That's the study of the last days, okay? And the book of Revelation fits right into that view. So Randy gets up in front of uh, the church early on, in his uh, career with us, and he says, now I'm going to preach a series to you that you will surprise you, but you need to listen very carefully to what this series is. He said, I'm going to preach two or three sermons on eschatology. And I'm sitting there saying, Harris, I know this congregation. They wouldn't know how to spell it, and you're going to preach a series of sermons on eschatology. And he looked me right in the eye with a big grin on his face because he knew what he was doing. He was needling me, you see. And he said, okay, here's the sermon. Eschatology. It means God always has the last word. Now we'll sing the song of invitation. <laughs> That's what he did. That sermon was God always has the last word in any discussion. Think about it. Now we'll sing the song of invitation. Only Randy Harris could pull that off and not get fired. But nevertheless, what I wanted you to see here, that's what, that, what goes on here in this whole story. What is truth? Only God has the final say in this matter. All right, moving on. <clears throat> Breastplate of righteousness. Having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace. Okay. What is the gospel of peace that Paul is talking about here? It's the good news. That's what gospel means. Of what? Jesus. Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, that is, has trust, to the Jew first, but also for the Gentile. That's the message that Paul preached. 
And that's what he said he ta- when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, now you remember, this is the message that I preached to you when I was with you, that Scripture foretold us that Jesus would die, he would be buried, and he would raise from the dead on the third day. That was Paul's message. Can you see what kind of a problem that would create for Paul when he goes into a synagogue? And he says, I'm going to tell you about the good news. And the good news is about Jesus who died on a cross and God raised him from the dead and he's gone to heaven. What do you think the Jews would think about that? They wouldn't like it. They'd like to kill him for that. So he goes into the Gentile community and he says, I want to tell you the good news about the kingdom. Okay, you're a Gentile living in that world at that time. What is the kingdom? It's Rome. And who is the kingdom of Ro- the king of Rome? Caesar. And Paul's going to say, no, no, that's not how it works. I want to talk to you about the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the king in the kingdom of God, and you need now to trust him and worship him and not Caesar. What do you think the Gentiles thought about that? All right. (laughs) But Paul could still call it the gospel of peace because it's that gospel of the death and the resurrection of Jesus that gives us peace. Why? I'm going to die. They don't have to worry about that. Why? Because of Jesus. And because God raised Jesus from the dead, and he says, if you will trust me, I will raise you from the dead just as I rose Jesus from the dead. See, So you can see why it brings peace to us living in this world of turmoil. But we have peace. Because we have Jesus and we have God. And Paul is mentioning that as he he comes to this gospel of peace. Besides all these, taking the shield of faith. Here we come to the shield of faith. This is what's going to protect you. The shield of faith. Believing in God. I have to tell you another little personal story that has always been real for me. Back in 1960, I think it was in 1961, I had just been preaching for about one year and I'd moved up to Benoni, and I was preaching for the church in Benoni. Uh, Jeannie knows all about the church in Benoni, but she didn't know the church in Benoni when I was there. It was wild, okay? And so I had uh, been studying with this one family and uh, convinced them that they needed to be baptized, but they said, well, we need to, we, I'd like you to talk to my preacher about this. Why don't you to come and discuss this with our preacher? And I thought, okay, big deal. You know, I'll go and discuss 26 years old, guess what? I knew everything. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tackle anybody, you know. 26 years old, I'll go and tackle them. Yeah, I'll go. So they make arrangements for us to meet, and they took me over there to this massive auditorium, 3,000-plus people sitting in the auditorium, and he takes me down to the front row, and he said, you see that gentleman up there in the black suit with the silver hair, six-foot-something tall? He said, that's our preacher, Dr. Didat. That was his real name, Dr. Didat. And I thought, Lord, what have you brought me into here today? That guy is going to chew me up in little pieces. You know? And I sat there, didn't hear him say much, but I kept on talking to God. God, you've got to help me here. You've got to help me here. You know, I'm in trouble. We got through this thing, and this guy comes down. Dr. D. Dad comes down. Nice black suit, silver hair and that. And he said, oh, you're the young man that is troubling my people. I said, yeah, that's me. He says, you come here and you teach this water baptism stuff and cause all of these problems. And when he said that, I knew I had him. Boom, right there. 
I said, you don't believe in water baptism? What did he say then? I said, okay, why don't we just go to the New Testament? And I had that guy for three hours backed into a corner. Everyone else left. But what did I have on my side? I had faith and I had truth. And this guy didn't stand a chance. When you've got faith and you've got truth, doesn't James say something about this in James chapter 4, around about verse 7? Resist the devil. And what? And he will get out of there in a hurry. When we resist the devil with faith and we stand firm and we know we're in a right relationship with God and we're trusting in God and his power, Satan's not going to hang around there very long. Okay? So this is what Paul is sort of encouraging these people. They're going to face real battles and put on and take the helmet of salvation. What, what does that mean? Take the helmet of salvation. You put it on your head. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm possibly reading more into it than I should. Because what do you do with your head? You think. And so you're going to put a helmet on your thinker there. Take the helmet of salvation. And so when you get into a battle with Satan or anything like that, what should you be thinking of? You're saved. You've been saved by God through your faith in Jesus Christ. I tell you, it is a tremendous blessing to know that you're all right with God and that he will take care of you. Now, I, I'd come back. Uh, I was a chicken, but, you know, when I had to go through that business with prostate cancer, I didn't know what was going to happen. And so they send me down to this place down in Dallas at the hospital there. And I go in there, all kinds of other stuff. You have to understand now, you know, I'm a conservative guy. And they take me into this room. And this little nurse about that high comes out and she says, my name is Peanut. I said, that's good. She said, would you please get undressed? Here? Yeah, she just stripped right down. I thought, oh, Lord, what's going on here? And I said, well, why? She said, well, I'm going to have to shave you. <laughs> I said, no, 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 no. I can do that quite all right. I do it every morning. She said, no, because we're going to have to put some tattoos on your body. Okay, Put one on each side here, one in the middle, so that they can aim that radar thing at you. And so now I'm, by now I'm humiliated, torn apart, and destroyed, and everything. But fortunately, Peanut was such a sweet young lady, that sort of revived me a bit. So they put me on this machine. And she, he says, yeah, just lie down here nicely, and just, you know, relax. And I'm sitting here saying, relax, you don't know what that means. And he says, we're going to press this button and this thing's going to turn round and round you. And he presses this button and this massive piece of equipment goes around you and goes back and goes around you. And when he got through that, I said, well, are you through? He said, yeah. I said, I didn't feel anything. He said, you weren't supposed to feel anything. And I said, well, what is... The... He said, well, that radar was going to kill all of the cells that got in the road of where it was going around. I said, you mean they were killing some of my cells? He said, yeah. Guess what was going through my mind? Lord, put me on that bicycle with Tony Ash back in Abilene <laughs> and let me just fall over right now, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. 
I was just grateful that they had peanut there to calm me down. You know. But, you know, it, it, there are occasions like that in our life when, you know, we're just not too sure where it's going. What do we need to be assured of? If I die, I'm safe. I've got salvation. The helmet of salvation is the assurance that we have that we are safe because of God. Okay, fascinating. The helmet of salvation. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now we need to back into that. So these guys get this letter from Paul, and they say, okay, we've got this sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What is that word of God? What would you answer them? Well, you got the Bible. Well, guess what? They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the New Testament. They had Old Testament books, and we don't know that they had any of Paul's writings at this point yet. And so when he says, we've got the Word of God, uh, okay, I haven't heard God talking to me yet. What do you mean I got the Word of God? You see. So can you see how different it was for them and from us today? We have the Word of God right here. They didn't have it right here. How do they get the Word of God? Okay. Hmm? Through their preaching, right on. Romans chapter 10, round about verse 16, Paul writes to the Romans and says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing from the preaching of Christ. Old King James, I don't know what yours says, Betty. But uh, I'll forgive you if it says wrong. Okay. Uh, but faith comes by hearing the preaching of Christ. The word that's used for the word of Christ there is the preached word. Okay. And that's the word that is used here when he says the sword of the spirit, which is the priest, the preached word of God. And how do they get the preached word of God? By listening to who? Paul. And by this time, who else was possibly in Ephesus doing the preaching? Timothy. And Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Now be sure that you pay attention to the public reading of Scripture. You see? And so they got the Word of God through the preached message. The word for word. Now normally the word for word, isn't that terrible? The word for word is normally not... Well, let me back off and sort my brain out. The normal word for word in Greek is nomos. No. Yes, it is nomos, isn't it? Or is it logos? My brain went dead there. Logos. Yeah, logos. Nomos is something else, the name. Uh, Logos. That's the normal word for word, is logos. This is not the word that is used in this passage. The word that is used here is rhema. R-H-E-M-A, rhema. And rhema is the proclaimed or preached Word of God. And so Paul is encouraging them here now uh, to recognize they've got the sword of the Spirit. This is how the Spirit is going to be working with you, is through this preached Word of God. So, where are you going to go to get the preached Word of God? Where, where are you? Where are you going to? Okay, where are you going to go to to hear the preached word of God? Well, you go to church. But That's it. 
Don't go, don't go any further. You got it. You go to church to hear the preached word of God. Can you see why the writer to the Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together? Why? That's where you're going to hear the preached word of God. That's where you're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's where you're going to be in a special relationship with God, you see. And so going to church and being a part of a church is fundamental to our understanding of what Christianity is all about. Okay? And so we sometimes just overlook that because, yeah, we go to church. Why? Because we go to church. It's Sunday. Uh, yeah, but why do we go to church? Well, yeah, for fellowship. We're encouraged. We're strengthened. If I'm having problems and struggling with something, it's good for me to be around Christians who have been through those struggles and are handling it well. It's encouraging. Okay? But we hear the preached word of God. That's the sword of the Spirit. That's the way the Spirit is going to work in your life is through the preached word of God. So going to church is so, you know, I, I just, we're the, the young folk here, okay? I don't know which ones I'm looking at. You brought how many children this morning? Two. Two. One. One. Any over here? Any more? Two. You know, I don't know where, you go to first service or second service? First service. First service. First service. First service. It's your kids that sit back there and squawk the whole time while I'm sitting in church. <laughs> You know, and I'm trying to listen. Got one ear that doesn't work, and kids are crying at the back there. Guess what? I sit and smile. Isn't that wonderful? That we've got some people that know how important it is to bring their children to church, because what's going to happen at church as they grow up? They're going to grow up hearing the word of God. That's why it's so important that. You know, we, we recognize that there's more taking place in church on Sunday morning than just a bunch of folk getting together because they like each other, all right? And that's why I just, you know, I didn't have a problem with, uh, we had three sons and they were two years apart. I never had a problem with them in church uh, misbehaving or creating a ruckus. Why? I was in the pulpit preaching. My mind was somewhere else. June had the three kids, and they sat with her. And guess what? If they got out of line, Grandma would get after them, the other Grandma. See, But that's what I do. I really do appreciate having the young children and let them sing. That's great, because they're going to be hearing the preached word of God, which what does he say about this helmet of salvation? It's what protects you. Hearing the preached word of God, and it's good to get into that habit as soon as you can. Pray at all times in the Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? It would be easy for us to have prayers that we run through, like some religions do, written prayers where you're supposed to pray, that, and you run through those and you, you've prayed, but you really haven't prayed in the Spirit. What does that mean? Hmm? 
thinking about what you're paying. Yes, thinking about what you're paying. From your heart. Mm, from your heart, yes. Do you know there's a passage over there in Romans, chapter 8, bottom of the left-hand side page, verse 26, okay? And Paul says, when you pray, you're not always going to be able to know what you're praying about. You're going to be praying with moanings and groanings. But guess what? The Holy Spirit takes that prayer of yours and takes it to God and tells God about it. Wow. That when I'm talking to God... And that whole block of material is just great as you go down there and read the rest of it. And the point is, when, when I'm worshipping God and I'm talking to God, Jesus is standing over there and saying, yeah, he's our son. He belongs to us. And the Holy Spirit is saying over here, yeah, I was responsible in his birth. So when I'm praying to God, who is involved in that prayer? God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. They're all involved in that. So when we pray our prayers, we should pray with the understanding that, God, I'm not alone in this business here, that I'm praying with the Spirit. He is helping me in my prayers. I don't know about you, but perhaps I'm a little soft on this sense. Um, I like to talk to God when I'm praying. And a number of times I say to him, God, my thought wandered away. Are you still listening to me? He doesn't answer, but I know he's listening. And if I didn't know what was going, the Holy Spirit did know what was going. So all I want you to see about this praying in the Spirit is that we're praying in the sense that when we pray to God, the Holy Spirit is involved in our prayers and Jesus is involved in our prayers. We're just not alone in this business. So pray in the Spirit with prayer and supplication. What is prayer? It's talking to God. Okay. But it's talking to God in a certain way in which we're bowing down as we talk to God. But it's talking to God. That's all prayer is. But notice what he adds to that. Prayer and supplication. What is supplication? Sorry? When you start asking for things. Yeah, that's part, partially right. Basically, it carries the sense, the word is deasis, but it carries the sense of praying earnestly and pleading to God for others in behalf of others, right? It carries the sense of others. You make supplication not so much for yourself. Yes, you can, but you're praying for others. Now, if we're talking about, as Paul is talking about here, that we're all facing this war with God, and we're all in it together, we need to be praying for others seriously and earnestly. Okay? Okay, I've got to stop, So, because you've got another function you've got to go to. Um, pray with prayer, and uh, look at the next verse. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all of the saints. So the point that he's making here is, not only do you stand firm, but what are you? You're alert. You know what's going on. All I wanted you to pick up on the the conclusion, which is fascinating. Uh, Sister 
Bryson, you're welcome. Thank you for being Forgive me. Uh, in the conclusion that we have there, notice there's only one person named, which is Tychicus. Um, normally when Paul concludes his, lesson, his letters, he greets a whole bunch of other people. But in this letter, he doesn't. Why? We mentioned that the first lesson. In all probability, it's a circular letter written to a number of churches, and Paul doesn't know some of the people in some of those churches. Actually, he'd never been to Colossae. So again, he mentions Tychicus. Tychicus was a person that helped him, possibly was a scribe, helped him with his writing, and Tychicus was going to take the letter back to the Ephesian area and tell him about Paul and what was going on there. But that's an interesting little thing there that he is the only one mentioned, which is so unusual for Paul's epistles, not to mention others in greeting.